Good morning, everybody. Hey, let's thank our worship team today for leading us so well into the presence of the Lord. Thank you, guys. And for being handsome and beautiful to boot, right? Man, I've been at a lot of churches, and this is one of them. No, I'm just kidding. This is a beautiful church. Just give yourself a pat on the back because you're looking good today. You're smelling good. I gave somebody a hug uh, last Wednesday or something, and, and the, the guy said, man, you smell good. I was like, well, I did take my shower for the month, you know. <laughs> I don't want to get too crazy, too foo-foo. You know, some of these people shower in once a week. I mean, it's just too much as far as I'm concerned. Once a month is enough. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I like being, you know, clean and, and smelling nice. And I was at camp this week, uh, youth camp. We have our students up at camp at Aldersgate outside of Salem, and there are 500 students worshiping the Lord, engaging with God, getting purpose. Yeah, really incredible. Church, we had uh, Joy Church Medford, Joy Church Grants Pass, Joy Eugene, Life Bible from Harrisburg, church from uh, Salem, a church from Shelton, Washington, Newburgh Church, Rock Point, and a church from Hawaii actually brought their students here to Oregon to come to camp. They saw online, they just saw what God was doing at camp last year, and they were like, we want some of that. And, uh, and we're like, okay, well, if you want to fly over, and sure enough, they did. And so my, my thing is next year, let's go to be with them in Hawaii <laughs> and have camp. So parents, we're going to have to start fundraising right now. It's that, you know, why is youth camp $3,000? Well, it's on the big island, you know, it's a, uh... you guys, we're in a, in a new series today, kicking it off called ILMC, and it stands for two things. Number one, I love my church. How many of you love your church? Yes. Anybody, raise your hand if you have an I love my church t-shirt on right now today. There's always somebody. Come on, bring it. We have them. There's always somebody uh, in church wearing the I love my church t-shirt. And guys, we have those coming out, new version this year, at sometime in September. I'm not going to commit to a date because you never know how it goes with shipping and handling and all that printing. But we do have new t-shirts and uh, we'll get those out. It stands for I love my church and it also stands for I love my city. Somebody say I love my city. Awesome. Uh, man, I'm, I'm just going to preach today. When we, when we started Joy Church back in 2016, there were 29 of us in a living room, and uh, we grew explosively from week one to week two. We went from 29 to 22 people in the living room. Praise God. And we started Joy Church with a very clear mission statement, a very clear purpose of what God had called us as a church to do. Our mission statement is to love God love people, and make disciples. If you haven't seen it, it's on this banner over here, kind of hard to see. A few people on the front row on the left side get to, or right side, your, your way, get to see it. So if you're in the far back over there, make a trip down here, a field trip sometime to read the mission statement on the banner over here. Maybe we'll get it put up on the wall at some point. But we started Joy Church really on the basis of these three proclamations, that we are here to love God, to love people, and make disciples. And that's what I love my church and I love my city is all about. You see, as God is doing something in your life and in our lives together as a church family, the overflow of that is to be missional and to reach this beautiful community that God has placed us in. You know, it's easy to lose sight uh, of, of what God wants to accomplish. There's a difference between having natural vision and prophetic vision, or what I would call God-sized or God-oriented vision for a place. Many Christians will do something sad to me. It's grievous to me. They'll curse what God wants to bless. You know, we have some issues and some problems in our city. We have some issues and problems in our state. Come on, we have some problems, right? We have some problems 
in our nation, but God is not done with the nation that we live in. He's not done with the state that we call home. He's not done with our city, our community. God wants to redeem and rescue and bring people into his house. Come on, God wants to bless this place. And I can tell you right now that I'm not even prophesying. I'm just acknowledging what is true, that God has already blessed our city. And I'll tell you why, because he put you in it and he filled you with his Holy Spirit and he called you with fresh purpose in life. He's brought you out of darkness into his light. He's called you according to his purpose to do the good things that he planned for you long ago. And he's blessed this city because you are in it. And as you begin to wake up and and acknowledge the reality of what God is doing in you and begin to share it with other people, you can love your church. You can be on fire for Jesus. We can be here vertically having a great relationship with God, being transformed. But out of the overflow of what God is doing in us, he can do something through us And horizontally, we begin to love our city. That's why this series is always both. I love my church. I love my city. And we acknowledge and celebrate what God is doing here in us and what he wants to do through us in our community. Come on. God wants to bless our city. He wants to bless our city through us. Now, our mission statement comes from two profound and powerful statements made by Jesus that we find in the New Testament. The first part, the love God, love people, we get that out of Matthew chapter 22. There's this religious scholar or a lawyer or maybe a, a religious teacher that wants to kind of get Jesus to agree with his version of things or, or agree with his agenda, maybe his religious agenda or whatever. And he says to Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, being a good Jewish uh, man trained up in, in, in the Jewish faith and in in walking with the Lord as, a, as an Israelite, He gives the correct answer. He says, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And you can say it with me, if you know it, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength or mind and with all your strength. Sorry, I butchered that. I got (laughs) confused. With all your heart, soul, mind and strength. There we go. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And all the church people said, amen. Amen. All all the church people in Jesus' day, all the religious community, they would have nodded their head. Yeah, we heard that in church before, or we heard that in synagogue before. We've heard this. This is the Torah. This is the law. This is what we're to do. Our whole life is to be given and live for the glory of God. Uh, We love the Lord our God with covenant faithfulness, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus says, wait a minute. That's in the Greek if you parse the verbs. He said, wait a minute. He said, there's another commandment. Homoios in Greek, of equal importance, linked together like Siamese twins, another command. And they're like, what? Everybody's listening. What's he going to say? What's he going to say here? He says, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now they'd heard that before. That was not a new phrase. It wasn't a new idea, but Jesus gave it new Wait, because he said it's homoios, of equal importance. It's the same. And what he's saying here is the way that we love God is, to, is, is demonstrated by how we love people. It's kind of a big deal because it's easy to love a perfect, sinless, who always loves you, who never leaves you nor forsakes you. It's easy to love God. Not always, but if you're you're comparing things, it's easier to love a perfect God than it is to love a very imperfect Husky fan. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Just something, something wrong, something's off. You know what I mean? What's going on? This guy looks a little, he look a little shady, you know? It's easy, but Jesus connects our love for our neighbor, those in proximity to us and those that are not in proximity to us, but whoever needs mercy, he connects our love for God. He says the level of your love for God is going to be demonstrated by the love that you share with your neighbor. 
Jesus does this in many different ways. He communicates the same truth and it's communicated through the scriptures in many different ways. Like an example, when Jesus tells his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Again, how you love your neighbor, how you love your brother, how you love your people is is how you're demonstrating your love for God. Because it's easy to fake it, but you can't fake supernatural agape love for other people. If God's love is really in you, then it's going to come out. Like the Apostle John says, how can you say I love God, but I hate my brother? How can you say I love God, but I hate my brother? With our kids right now, we, we, we keep telling them, well, you know, we're not really like about hating people or hating things because they're always trying to find out what they can hate. They're like, do we hate Russians? We're like, no, we do not. My daughter's like, I hate Germans and Russians. And we're like, no, that's so racist. Well, there was Hitler was German. I'm like, yeah, but we're German. We don't hate Germans. Like, we, 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 don't, we don't support Nazis. Come on. We like, we're against that. I mean, we, but we don't, we're not hating people. We don't really feel like the pathway forward is to hate, you know. And what about, well, Putin's attacking Ukraine. I'm like, baby, we don't hate Russian people. We love Russian people. Also, Russian people are scary. So we just want, on the record, we love them. We love you. You know what I mean? In movies, they're always like, boojgi, boojgi, you know, and the guy that can beat you up. So we just love Russian people. We love people. We don't hate, you know, and so then the kids are like, well, do we hate the devil? And we're like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess, but let's not, let's not even really like focus our energy, you know what I mean, <laughs> on hatred. How about we love Jesus? How about that? I don't know where I'm going with that, but anyways, uh, uh, we, we want to love. So that's that first statement, love God, love people. But the second one that we base our mission, this make disciples piece, comes out of another profound powerful statement of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission. Now, Jesus and his disciples didn't call this the Great Commission. I think it was in the 16th or 17th century. There was this guy, Baron von you know, Frankenstein, or I don't know what his name was, but somebody that coined the phrase the Great Commission. And he had this teaching and he said, look, this wasn't just for Jesus' disciples or his apostles. This was for every believer. And this is something that, that, that we truly believe and accept that this is not just a command given to these disciples in this time and place, but it's actually for us today. Matthew 28, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Somebody say all. That's going to matter in a second. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Somebody say all. all. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. All. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This morning, I want to look into this passage that we call the Great Commission and look at the four alls that we see here. Jesus says all authority, talks about going to all the nations to communicate all of his commands or his teaching and empowered by his presence always or all the time. These claims that are made here, this this passage, this truth that is here are basic stuff but hugely important to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to look at these four alls today. Number one, the claim that Jesus makes, he starts off this mission to his disciples by saying, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, you might read through this and kind of just read it like I've heard it before a million times. I read my Bible a bunch of times. Pastor Jake, you always preach on this, you know. Maybe it's important, you know what I mean? But you always go through this. And what we can often do with scripture is we can go yada, 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 right? It's like, yeah, make disciples, whatever. Totally doing it, you know what I mean? We just kind of move through it. But I want us to focus in, 
kind of put it under the microscope and hear and see what Jesus is doing here. Because this is truly a profound statement. Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the boss. I am the bee's knees. I am the cat's pajamas. I am the Lord. I am, I am it. I'm the dude. I'm the alpha. Come on. He's saying in heaven and on earth. Now we hear this, this phrase, heaven, and your mind might drift to your precious moments, you know, idea of heaven. It's like, oh, we're fat spiritual babies. We play harps. We're sitting on clouds. Wayne Newton music is gently drifting over the heavenly music speakers, you know, and no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Actually, in this contrast in the scripture, we have the contrast between heaven and earth because heaven or the heavenlies or the heavens represents the supernatural or spiritual reality. How many of you know we're not just time plus slime plus chance? We, we disagree with Carl Sagan, or at least I do, who said the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Wah, wah, wah. We believe in a supernatural dimension to reality. So I don't say the real world and the spiritual world. That's ridiculous. That'd be like saying the real physical world and then the dimension of time. Like, no, we understand there are different dimensions. And so when the Bible or the biblical authors talk about heavens or the heavenlies, they're talking about the spiritual reality, if you will, the supernatural realm. God is, uh, is a spirit. He dwells in the supernatural realm. He interfaces with the earth. But then we have the earth. The earth is where we as human beings of bone and blood and biology and flesh, where we dwell, that we were created for this place. In Genesis 1 and chapter 2, God creates the cosmos. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the, the dimensions of reality, the spiritual, the supernatural, and the, and the physical, and he interfaces them. He interacts. He, he, he brings them together. It says in Genesis 2 that God created a man, and he placed him in a garden, and he breathed his life. And there was a unification of spirit and and physiology of biology, okay? And God animates him with his spirit. And now we see earth and mankind is always destined to rule and to reign and to dwell and occupy this dimension that we call the earth. So all those words, let's wrap it up in a tidy bow. Here's what Jesus is saying. Because I am the boss of not just the heavens, not just the supernatural, the spiritual realm, but also the earth, then you need to listen to what I'm saying next. And this is nothing less than a direct claim to divinity. It's interesting because so many people, and I'm going to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis about this, but so many people want to, want to take Jesus, they want to pick and choose what they receive and accept about this person, Jesus, and say, well, he was a great moral teacher. He, he loved people. I like that part. And I like the sandals. And I like the white robe. And, you know, there's things about Jesus that I like. I don't so much like when he would go into the temple and like whip, whip folks and, you know, turn over tables and say offensive things. And there was, you know, that one passage where he calls that person a dog. And like, you know, some of you that know the scriptures know what I'm talking about. Like Jesus actually does some offensive things. And we live in a culture that loves to pick and choose. But here's the deal. Jesus never intended to leave us with any other option than to fully receive him as, as everything. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, Lord and Savior, not just of earth or not just of heaven, but of both. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Listen to this part. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus made a direct claim to divinity and he said, based on my authority of both heaven and earth, this is the mission I'm going to give to you. This is the mission and assignment I'm going to hand to you. You know that Jesus is God's perfect and final revelation of who he is. It says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, this is the words of Jesus. My father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the son except the father. No one truly knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. In John 14, 9, Jesus is speaking to his disciple, Philip. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? This is a big deal because in this room, there are some incredible disciples of Jesus. There are some people here that I, I really honor and esteem and I think are a really good example of what a follower of Jesus looks like. And you're like, please, Pastor Jake, stop talking about me. You're embarrassing me. There are some people in here that are, that, man, when, when they walk in the room, you, you feel the Holy Spirit. They, they really walk with the Lord and they're a great example. But I know this. Not one of them, not one of you would say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. <laughs> Do you realize these kind of claims and statements that Jesus make, and this is what C.S. Lewis is pointing out, the dude is either the biggest megalomaniac that the world has ever seen, or we have to take seriously what he says. Yeah. But we can't go into some wishy-washy middle ground about what do we do with Jesus. Yeah. His very person and what he does and what he says forces a decision constantly. He's offensive. He pushes us out of our comfort zone and says, deal with it. Yeah. He doesn't leave this option available to us. And this is why, as Christians, we talk about being followers of Jesus. This is why we make such a big deal about it. Because Jesus is it. Jesus is the target. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. We, we've, we've landed on this side of this, this chasm of decision who are we going to follow? Who has hope? Who has life? We follow the Lord of heaven and earth. And Jesus says all authority has been given that, to, to him. And he says, because all authority has been given to, to me, listen to the next all statement, number two, therefore go and make disciples of, say it with me, all the nations. All the nations. Now this word nations in the original language is the word ethne. And we get our word ethnicity or ethnic from it. And it's speaking about all the tribes and all the nations and all the people. But throughout the New Testament, you have to understand something that this word ethne, you'll see it throughout the New Testament, is also often translated not just as nations broadly, but it specifically says the Gentiles. And here's the deal. Uh, up to this point, you've had a, uh, an us and them kind of paradigm operating. And here's Jesus as a Jewish man with his 12 disciples, or at this point, 11, because Judas had done his Judasness, you know, at this point at the Great Commission, and Jesus is here, and he's, he's primarily ministered to a, uh, an, uh, an Israelite or a Jewish audience, and his disciples are Jewish, and they've operated in this paradigm that we are God's people, we're God's covenant family, God's covenant people, he's, the, he's working through us and through our story, and then there's those people. Even, even in Jesus' day and age, just like today, there's always us and them. 
And so Jesus is actually saying here, take the gospel to all the nations. And he is speaking broadly about take it to every place in the world. But he's actually breaking down the us and them paradigm. Because this word ethne also means those that are not Jewish. God had primarily revealed himself to and through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, it's the story of God's relationship with this special group of people, specifically God's operation through this guy Abraham and Abraham's kids and then their family as they grow and they go to Egypt and God works with them and he reveals himself and the Ten Commandments. I'm just kind of going quick, right? We're on fast forward. We're on Netflix two times, right? Listening to the podcast at 2.5. We're getting through it. And, and, he, and all this kind of stuff. God had primarily worked through. That's how he revealed himself. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. So were his 12 disciples. And again, they understood the world through the us and them paradigm of Jews and Gentiles. But what's interesting is that they, they didn't really get it because in Jesus' day and age and throughout their entire history, they had embraced this us and them paradigm. But in the scriptures, right there in the Old Testament even, are all these verses and commands from God that God's family was not meant to just be a good, godly, family, but they were actually meant to be missionaries. They were meant to share God's love and share God's light and be a good example and invite people to actually participate in a faithful covenant relationship with God. And yet they failed miserably at this task again and again and again and again. At best, they were basically religious exclusivists. At worst, they were bigoted racists. Truthfully, if you look at the Old Testament, some of the, the people that are that we even look at as heroes of faith, they were jerks. They did not have God's heart for people. And, and we might think, you know, in some kind of Gnostic belief, oh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. They're not different. Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, what we see that often is so foreign and weird to us is not prescriptive. It is rather descriptive. And what I mean by this is that God is not giving us the full revelation of what he actually wants from human beings. What he's often doing, what we often see is a description of God operating and working with an ancient people group in a really crazy world of idol worshipers, people that sacrificed each other, that raped and murdered and took slaves. And it was brutal. It was like the Wild West times a million. And it was horrible. And God's trying to take this slave nation out of a horrible situation. And he's trying to reveal himself. And so he's talking to them about moldy houses and don't poop in your camp. And you guys need to do this and all this weird stuff. And we read it and we're like, I don't even understand. And then you read stuff and you're like, well, is God telling us that we're supposed to do this or that? And it's no, it's not prescriptive. Yeah. It's descriptive. It's God's working with this people that don't get it, but he's trying to be faithful to them or he is being faithful to them, even in their unfaithfulness. And then when Christ comes, then we begin to see the prescriptive truth of God. And Jesus gives us the full picture of what God actually wants. This is why, like we did a series a, a few weeks ago called, or months ago now, called You've Heard It Said. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder your brother. But I say, don't even have hate in your heart. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, God gave a prescription or a description. Don't murder. He's trying to give them the bare minimum. Do not kill another human being out of anger. But that's not enough. Jesus was saying God's actual heart is that you would get hate out of you and understand what it means to be a human being and to love people, love God, walk in relationship and actually achieve your God-given purpose. And so this, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament, again, I'll just repeat, is descriptive, not prescriptive. We see the prescriptive in Christ. So God's people, they really live up to this. But what we see in the Old Testament 
is as the nation of Israel is continually unfaithful to God, continually, like they do good for a few years, then they really mess it up for a few hundred. Then they do good for a few years, they really mess it up for a few hundred. Uh, we often have such a short view of history. We, we think that like God is going to do everything that he's doing in history in your lifetime. Mm, no, he's got a lot longer than us, right? We might just live in one of those intermediate periods. We don't know. But throughout the, the nation of Israel and their story, they're just continually unfaithful to God. And yet God is always faithful to them. And he tells us later in the New Testament that all of that was even to show us that it, we were not able, even God's family, his, his own selected chosen group of people that were given his commands and that understood how to walk with God, that even them with all the right knowledge were unable to, and it, and it showed our need for a savior. But God was never just about trying to save his own family. He was always creating a pathway to reach every nation, to reach all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. How many of you are grateful for that? How many people that love shrimp are grateful for that? That God... <laughs> And, and bacon. Come on, in Jesus' name. Now through Christ, all people, all nations can be saved and restored to relationship with God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, Paul calls himself like the best Jew. He was like the best rabbi. He knew it all. He, he did it all. He was super Jewish. And so Paul in Galatians is writing to a Gentile church. Galatians in Greece. This isn't a Jewish church. There might have been some Jews there, but this is a Gentile church. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying something very profound here that I think we need to learn from in our world of intersectionality and tribalism and identification and my label is this and here's my pronouns. In Christ, drop your attitude and drop your tribalism and drop your intersectionality and drop your brokenness at the foot of the cross and let the blood of Christ flow through your veins because you're in a new family and you have a new identity. And we're not doing us and them. Well, it's us Republicans versus them Democrats or us Democrats versus all the MAGA people. No. Well, it's us men versus women. No. Women versus men. No. Short people versus tall people. No. Old versus young. Generational battles. No. Who are you? I'm one in Christ. Amen. Not us versus them. New family. One family. One baptism. One faith. You're all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't diminish the beauty and the difference between men and women. This doesn't diminish the difference between ethnicities and the beautiful differences. This doesn't diminish the differences between old and young and the value that older generations can bring to the younger and vice versa. Yes, boomers, millennials do have something to teach you. Yes, millennials, boomers do have something to teach you. Okay, boomer, right? Like, don't be... <laughs> we have something to give. One faith, one people, one one group in Christ. In verse 29, Paul says, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You're in God's family. You're, you're brought into his plan. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. It is now the church, the followers of Jesus Christ that are called to be a light to all nations. This is so cool because as Jesus says that I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, he's saying, I have the right to say this Therefore, go and make disciples of everyone, all nations, all ethnies, not us and them. God's kingdom is open and available and accessible to all. And we have the privilege to proclaim it, yeah. 
to invite people to the party. This is why I love the church so much and why Satan hates the church so much. Let me tell you right now, the devil wants to pull down the church, specifically even coming to church on a Sunday or being part of a group, your participation in the body of Christ, the physical, tangible church of Jesus upon the earth. The devil wants to tear it down because it's the exact fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission, that all people would come together, that all uh, nations would call my house a house of prayer, as Jesus talked about. God's heart is to break down the walls between genders and race and break down the walls between uh, uh, political affiliations and bring us together under the cross of Christ as one family. And the church is the only place in the world where we come together as every race, uh, as both genders, as every generation, and we sit together and we don't vote the same, we don't think the same. Some of you like, you know, the Huskies, ooh, it's hard to even, ooh, ooh, it's hard to say it. Other people, you know, love God's team, the Ducks, right? They're fully enlightened into what God's plan and purpose for the world is. And yet we come together, all joking aside, we come together and we're family. And so what does the devil want to do? How do you know the devil's talking? How do you know he's speaking? How do you know he's whispering in your ear? Because he's saying us and them, us and them, us and them, us and them, us and them. Oh, it's the Republicans. It's the MAGA people with all their guns. Hey, Democrat, you're called to walk in with the love of Jesus right through all the MAGA banners and all the guns pointing at you and share the love of Christ. Hey, Republicans, it's the Democrats and Tifa. They're so dirty. They have so many tattoos, you know. <laughs> hey, MAGA, go and witness and win those Antifa people to Jesus. Share your life with them. Oh, this is so, so political. Do you think the kingdom of God cares about our politics? He supersedes it because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. All right, all right, all right. That's why we love the church so much because this is where this command comes into practice and play. But Satan hates it. He tries to tear it down. Oh, you don't need to go to church. Just be the church. What does that even mean? I like what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, don't tear down a fence until you learn why it was put up in the first place. The church is where all people get to have a real relationship with God and a real restored relationship with each other. Number three, all Jesus commands. Jesus says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is talking about an obedient life, an obedient life. Biblical discipleship is about surrendering to the cross of Christ every day and living your life according to the standard, the measure of Christ's teaching. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm happy to say, happy to stand up here on the stage and just tell you that I am so excited that I've perfected this. Just every single day, absolutely living it fully in accordance with Jesus' teaching. How many of you know that's completely facetious? How many of you would say that Christians, we fall short of Christ's standard? He's not saying in your own strength, you're going to be perfect. He's saying, I will make you perfect through your weakness I made strong, but embrace the cross. Don't deny the standard, grow. Don't deny the standard, grow. Don't deny the standard, grow. Yeah, but I fell down again today. Get up. He's with you. He's for you. He forgives you. And in his grace, you can keep going. And even if at the very end of your life, when you give your final breath, you didn't achieve the fullness of walking in the cross of Christ, 
That's okay because you're now going to be perfected forever in heaven. But this life is a journey of faith. It's a race. It's a fight. You've got to keep going. And Jesus says, teach these new disciples to obey my commands. Contrast that with our culture of relativistic consumption. I'm going to leave those two words out there. Relativism says morals, ethics, beliefs are matters of preference. And that you have your truth and I have mine. And as a culture, we've been so affected, infected with this gross, total lie that there is no such thing as objective reality and truth. And, it, and, and it's crazy to me that as a culture, we just live in this cesspool of relativism all the time. But, but it, it, it's affected our political systems. It's infected our, our schools. It's infected our ideologies. And it's even infected churches where we have all these crazy beliefs that like we can basically be disciples of Jesus, but also not be disciples of Jesus. And we live in this state of cognitive dissonance. And the reality is that Jesus demands obedience because he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And that doesn't mean we always live up to the standard, but we don't get to pick and choose what we believe is the standard. We don't get to, to, to mess with it. And so we live in this culture of relativism, but we also live in a culture of consumption, which says, if it doesn't feed me, if it doesn't please me, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work for me, not only can I be comfortable with cognitive dissonance and relativism, but also if it doesn't personally make me feel better immediately, then I'll basically decide that's not for me. And so what we do is we pick and choose the parts of Jesus that agree or align with our socio-political ethical preferences. The reality is when, when I talk to people about living out, like, as, a, as a Christian in the 21st century, there are things that I feel compelled to communicate or things that I feel compelled to believe, not out of preference, but out of obedience to Christ that really force me to be pretty uncomfortable. And you've heard me on this stage talk about issues that are hot buttons like abortion and gender dysphoria and issues and and, and talk about how, you know, we're not going for one political party. It's not like MAGA forever or down with MAGA. Like, we're not, we're not trying to be part of these kingdoms. We're trying to influence these kingdoms with our kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. And so we get into these sort of hot-button places and these sticky issues. In this culture of relativistic consumption, people want to pick parts of Jesus and say, well, I love the Jesus that, like, loves kids and is... Now, it talks about love, but I don't like the Jesus that demands obedience. And I don't like the Jesus that says the only way to God is through me. Because that might make Buddhists and Hindus and like most of the world uncomfortable. You see, Jesus told people up front who he was and what he was doing. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. Yeah, but you're the Prince of Peace. He said, I came to bring a sword. Why? Because the only peace that will come in this world is when King Jesus sits on the throne and all disagreements are over about who's Lord. And yet we don't bring a sword. We don't bring guns. We're not bringing warfare to our world. We bring love and truth and justice and sacrifice. Come on. And so the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down principalities and powers. We're spiritual warriors. We, we lay our lives down as soldiers of Christ, not with guns and knives, but with the Bible and with prayer and with loving people and sitting down across a table and sharing our life with broken people that have way more tattoos than you do or maybe way less. Are you with me? So Jesus is calling us to a life of obedience. The Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes. It means student or pupil. We actually get our word math from it. And it means the mental effort required to think something through. And what Jesus says when he calls us to be disciples is, do the math, count the cost, like do the calculus, right? Do, does it add up? Are you, are you in? Have you added this up? Have you counted the cost 
Because Jesus is not inviting people to observe him. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. People that will say, I'm in Jesus, even through the uncomfortable stuff, even through when my social, political, ethical views and relativistic consumption comes into conflict with your commands, Jesus said, disciples make disciples, teaching them to obey, not just observe, but obey all that I've commanded. It's a hard teaching. That's why many people departed from Jesus in his ministry. You hear people say, oh, the world loves Jesus. They just have a problem with the church. Malarkey, malarkey. The scripture says that men love the darkness and so they reject the light. Jesus Christ was a sword. He divides. He, he's so offensive. And yet he's the savior that bled on a cross for you. So you can hold to your pride or you can embrace the cross and embrace the savior. And Jesus invites us to be followers. And then number four, the fourth all, the most encouraging one out of these, I think they're all encouraging, but this is so encouraging. He says, and I will be with you always. His presence, his empowerment with us as we go on mission, as we live our lives as disciples of Christ, he does not abandon us or forsake us. He's with us. Jesus actually told his disciples, it's good for you if I go. I want you to think everything we think about Jesus, we, we invite Jesus in. We love Jesus. We want Jesus. And Jesus said, it's actually good for you if I go. Why? Because he was in a physical body. He has a physical body. And on, on this planet 2,000 years ago, he was limited to be in a couple hundred mile radius of where he was. He ministered to probably no more than a few hundred thousand at the very most people. Uh, and, and ministered to some, a very specific group of people, the Jews mostly, the people of Israel and some Romans and some Gentiles and the Decapolis, but that was it. And so he tells his disciples to get the cat out of the bag. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And he, I, he's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. In Luke 24, 49, now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. I love what Jesus is talking about. It echoes to me the words that God spoke to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not panic before your enemies. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. In the book of Hebrews, they quote this passage. They say, he will neither forsake you nor abandon you. God will not leave you. The presence of Jesus goes with his disciples. Is it a walk of, the, of faith? Yes. Is it a journey? Yes. Is it difficult sometimes? A hundred percent. But you're never, ever alone. And this is why at Joy Church, unabashedly, unashamedly, we want you to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit so you can be not just acknowledging the fact that Jesus has saved you, but you can be filled with his power to be his witness and go on the offensive, carrying the gospel to the world around you as a witness of Jesus Christ. You are not alone. You, are, you have a mission. We are equipped and we are empowered. But I love this beautiful personal promise for each of us that we are also accompanied at all times by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Four alls of the Great Commission, all authority, all nations, all commands, all the time. He's with us. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. I pray, God, that it would go into our hearts and be planted in good soil, produce good fruit, that, Lord, we 
are on a mission and we are your mathetes. We are your disciples. Lord, we count the cost. We want to follow you, Jesus. It's not easy and we're not perfect, but we continue to pursue your heart, your ways. Jesus, we don't want to make it up. We want to follow what you've said. We choose to believe your word. We choose to build our life on your teachings, the only solid rock. You are our Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to love our city, to make a difference as you've made a difference in us and you're making a difference in us, that we'd make a difference in the world around us, carrying the gospel to those around us, Lord, and making disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Real quick, if you bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to give an opportunity. I know we're out of time today, but uh, I think the Baptists have gone long too, so we'll go ahead and beat them to the best restaurants even if I go just a tiny bit long. But today, if you're here and you want to make a decision to put your faith in Christ, you would say, I'm not a disciple. I'm, I'm not somebody who has really surrendered my life to Jesus. There's a beautiful transaction that happens when we decide to become followers of Jesus. We put our faith in him. We believe that he was crucified 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross and that that crucifixion was payment for our sins, that God raised him from the dead as a sign of what is to come, that those who are in Christ, death doesn't get the final say, but there's resurrection life. You can put your faith in this person, Jesus. You can receive him as Lord and Savior. I don't invite you to put Jesus on your plate and then go put a bunch of other stuff on your plate. What I invite you today is to hand him the plate and say, this is my life and it's yours. All of it. Good, bad, all of it. Would you save me? If that's you today and you say, Jesus, would you save me? I want to follow you. Would you raise your hand? And I'm just going to pray with you today. Anybody in this place? Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith in Christ. It's a great opportunity today to put your faith in Jesus. Awesome. We're going to pray together. Let's just pray after me. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I thank you for your grace and your mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.